Proverbs 910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. If you were with us last time, you'll remember that we talked about God's plan to save his people and the benefits that come along with being born again and adopted into God's family, like being a brother or sister of Jesus and co-heirs of the kingdom. And we talked about the fact that once we are saved, the chains that held us in bondage to sin are broken, and we are free to live pleasing to God as the Holy Spirit makes us more and more like our elder brother Jesus. We also talked about the great exchange that takes place, where Jesus takes on our filthy garments of sin and gives us his perfect robe of righteousness. I love the mental picture of that. I do too. And last, but certainly not least, we know that we can be free from the fear of death Because when Jesus is our Savior, we're going to be at his side the second we take our last breath here on earth. Chris, last time we mentioned that after our hearts are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, at some point we will respond to the gospel message by fully surrendering to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. The response you're talking about is called faith. And that faith is in Jesus and what he has secured for his people, which was forgiveness of sin and eternal life in heaven. Our former fathers stated it, sola fide in solo Christo, which means faith alone in Christ alone. Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And later in that chapter, it says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. The word faith gets thrown around a lot these days. So what exactly is faith? Well, faith is a total reliance and full trust in something. Usually, faith is associated with our religious beliefs, but we have faith in stuff every day. We all live by faith. We have faith that when we put our money in the bank, it's going to be there when we need it. We have faith that when we order from Amazon, our package will arrive, and if it's damaged, we can send it back. We have faith that when we order from a restaurant, the food isn't going to be contaminated and that no one's going to spit in it. Although the more you send your meal back, you probably should have less and less faith that someone's not going to spit in it. That is absolutely true and something to definitely keep in mind. And speaking of having full reliance and full trust in something, and the way that word faith gets used sometimes, we should mention how it's taken out of context and when you shouldn't put your full trust and reliance in something. In Mark 11, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says to the twelve, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Rose, why don't you explain those verses before we get into talking about faith in regard to salvation? Well, the verses do not mean if you ask for a million dollars and have enough faith that you'll get a million dollars. Also doesn't mean if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. In the passage that you mentioned, just before this, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem with his apostles, and they find a fig tree with leaves but no fruit. Jesus curses the tree for looking like it should have fruit but not having any fruit. This tree is a metaphor for the Jewish religious leaders who certainly presented themselves as men of God but were fruitless when it came to spiritual matters. When Jesus and the apostles leave the city later, The tree is withered and dying. This is when Jesus talks to him about having faith to move mountains. The fig tree and the mountains both represent spiritual matters. Jesus is using hyperbole about being able to throw mountains into the city. When he says, whatever you ask in prayer, 
believe that you have received it and it will be yours. He's talking about spiritual things like perseverance in trials, patience, wisdom, righteousness, discernment. These kind of things are the things that the Father is pleased to give us if we ask him and things he'll always give us if we ask in faith. Because when we don't have these things, our spiritual condition withers and dies. Right. So the Father is pleased to give us these things. And that truth is reiterated by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about asking, seeking, and knocking. Those verses talk, all talk about praying for spiritual help. And in addition, James says the same thing in chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. Right. Now, getting back to faith in regard to salvation, we need to have faith that Jesus' death on the cross as pace was enough to satisfy God's wrath against us. And like I said, it's total reliance and trust in what Jesus did. It's like trusting all your weight on a parachute as you fall through the sky. At that point, you couldn't do anything to save yourself. Your arms couldn't flap fast enough to keep you up, no matter how much floppy arm skin you have underneath. (laughs) So you're totally relying on the parachute. And you can and should totally rely on what Jesus has done for you. And it's also having faith. He was resurrected after three days, and that was enough to defeat Satan's sin and death. At its core, faith is believing everything the Bible says. If you don't believe and know what the Bible says, even if you're claiming to be a Christian, you're definitely going to have a faith crisis at some point. That's why the Reformer Fathers added sola scriptura, which means only using the Bible as our authority on all things, to sola fide and sola Christo, faith alone, in Christ alone. We need to have faith that the Bible is true. Exactly. It makes all the difference in the world. Without total reliance on what Scripture says and total reliance on Jesus, we're left wondering if God is happy with us, if he's mad at us, or if he's disappointed in us. So many people worry themselves sick, wondering if God is disappointed in them. While we should always strive to be more and more like Jesus, and since we have the ability to not sin, we should certainly be striving to not sin. But we need to remember, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Remember, there was an exchange that took place, and now God sees Jesus' robe of righteousness on us. Since God the Father could never be disappointed or unhappy with Jesus, he's never disappointed in us if we belong to Jesus. Exactly. You mentioned that we should be striving to not sin. That leads me to a word we sometimes hear coupled with the word faith in regard to salvation. And that word I'm thinking of is repentance. Repentance is the act of asking forgiveness from God for our sin and then turning from it. John the Baptist called the people to repent. It's preached by Jesus in Matthew 4, 17, when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we see it preached by the apostles and we see it in Revelation chapter three. Repentance is important. Right. And true repentance leads you to a 180 degree turn from sin to Christ. Faith and repentance are two words we hear together. In fact, there's sometimes debate whether a person needs faith or faith and repentance. But I think that's kind of a moot point. The truth is, repentance is a fruit of faith, so if you have true faith, you will repent. If believers were fig trees, we'd have faith figs and repentance figs. Right. (laughs) You know, a consequence of not thinking that repentance is part of faith is the danger of falling into antinomianism. The dictionary definition of antinomianism is believing that once you are under grace, the moral law is of no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary for salvation. In other words, you keep on sinning because you're under grace and forgiven through the blood of Jesus. But Paul deals with that in Romans 6.15 when he says, Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? 
by no means. A Christian who continues to willfully sin is like a fig tree with leaves, but no fruit. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 gives us a warning. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Wow. So what you're saying is if you willfully continue to sin, thinking it doesn't matter because you're under grace, you're probably not a believer. Right. The Puritan John Owen says the total opposite. He says we need to mortify our sin. In other words, we need to be killing our sin. He uses the quote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's a great quote. And it is kind of sobering. It is. And he bases his book, The Mortification of Sin, on Romans 8, 13, which says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death or mortify the deeds of the body, you'll live. And as a Christian, we should begin to hate our sin more and more as the Holy Spirit works to make us more and more like Jesus. That's true repentance. But there is a kind of penance we need to talk about that isn't true repentance. That's right. It's called attrition or false repentance. Attrition is a mere acknowledgement that sinners deserve to be punished without any of the true appeal to God for forgiveness. It tends to show its ugly head because there's no intention of turning away from sin and striving against it. Esau is a great example of this in the book of Genesis. Esau didn't mind giving up his birthright for a bowl of stew when he was hungry. It was only when he realized the earthly consequences of his actions. He was sorry because he gave up his birthright and missed out on the blessings that went with that birthright. Yeah, they're like siblings when their parents make them apologize to one another after they've been fighting. You send them to their room until they're sorry and ready to apologize. And that may take a while, sometimes even hours. But eventually they will apologize, although most of the time they're not really sorry for the fighting. They just want let out of their room. That sounds like my daughter the whole time she was growing up. I think every parent deals with that. <laughs> but she's wonderful now. She is wonderful now. Jesus didn't make atonement for that kind of repentance. This manifests itself today in ways like saying the sinner's prayer just to buy fire insurance against hell and thinking those words will protect you or something. Or by running to the altar call or the baptism service over and over again so God won't be mad at you. When I think about these kind of things, I can't help but wonder... Is the underlying cause just that people have a false sense of security? That's a good point. Actually, it's a sad point because I bet some of them might have a false sense of security about their salvation. That's what I'm thinking. That's why we need to understand the complete gospel message and realize that it's faith alone in Jesus alone. And we can't add anything. Our faith should be in just Jesus, not Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus plus going to church or Jesus plus our tithes and offerings. Jesus is not a math problem. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there are things, though, that people think they have to add to faith in order to be saved or to prove salvation. Like baptism, for example. Baptism is not required for salvation. Baptism is a means of grace, a holy visible sign and seal that strengthens our faith by reminding us what Christ has done and focusing our faith on that. But it isn't necessary for salvation. And another thing people add is good works. But good works are the expression of our faith. They're not needed in order to be saved. The thief on the cross never had any time to do good works. No, he didn't. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not a result of works so that no one may boast. Right. And the last thing that comes to mind when I think about people trying to add something to their faith for salvation or proving their salvation is speaking in tongues. Rose, can you elaborate a little bit about what speaking in tongues actually is? Well, at the time of Pentecost, we get a small picture of a reversal of the Tower of Babel, and we see that narrative in Genesis. At the Tower of Babel, people were scattered throughout the world and their language was confused as punishment by God. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, the apostles speak in tongues, which means they could supernaturally communicate in the languages of all the people there, languages they never knew prior to that. This was done so that the people who were in Jerusalem at the time, many who didn't speak the same language as the apostles, could hear the gospel message in their own language and believe. The word, quote-unquote, tongue is defined as the language of a different people group. It was a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's not the kind of babbling that gets passed off as speaking in tongues today, and it certainly isn't something that you do by picking a word and repeating it over and over and faster and faster, like I heard an online pastor trying to teach his congregation to do recently. You heard a pastor teaching people how to speak in tongues? Yes, and that's how he described to do it. If it's a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, why would you need to teach someone how to do it? Good question, Rose. Like you often say, think something through all the way to the end to see if it even makes sense. Yeah. Well, getting back to the main point, nowhere in the Bible does it say that speaking in tongues is needed for salvation or proof of salvation. People get this idea from the 16th chapter in the Gospel of Mark. A little bit too complicated to get into now, but these verses have caused some serious issues in the church because they've been misinterpreted, they've been abused, and they've led to some questionable practices like the one we're talking about now. People who have faith, but are being told by others that they have to speak in tongues as proof that they're truly saved. Spiritual gifts are for the use of building each other up in the church, not for proof of salvation or for any other personal use. That's the opposite of what their purpose is. Good point. And the answer to whether any of the things we mentioned is necessary for salvation, the answer is no. No. Faith alone, sola fidea, in Christ alone. Solo Cristo is the response to the effectual call of the gospel. Regeneration of the heart leads to faith, which leads to repentance, which will lead to good works. Every bit of our salvation is a gift from God. There is absolutely nothing we can do to earn it, and there's nothing we can do to lose it. That's a controversial subject, and we are going to talk about it in an upcoming episode. That's probably a good place to stop for today. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. If you liked this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to it. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and check out our website, www.proverbs910ministries.com. Have a blessed day.